0: From Washington, D.C., this is the Korean American Perspectives, a new podcast presented to you by the Council of Korean Americans.
1: Welcome to the Korean American Perspectives podcast, where we explore the triumphs and challenges of the Korean American experience and examine different sides of complex issues that shape our community. We thank you for tuning in and hope you enjoy this episode.
0: Welcome to the Korean American Perspectives podcast. My name is Abraham Kim, and I'm here with my co-host, Jessica Lee. How are you doing, Jessica? Great. Today we have the unique opportunity to interview one of our distinguished members of CKA, Jenny Town. She's a Stimson Fellow and also the Managing Director of the Simpsons 38th North website. It's a rich conversation between Jenny and Jessica, covering a number of issues. She as an adoptee growing up in Minnesota and then going back to Korea later in life and that experience when she was an exchange student at Iwa University and then she delves into uh, the challenges of what current Korean-American adoptees face today Uh, and then her career as a North Korea analyst and the opportunity to launch the 38 North website as a co-founder which has now become one of the preeminent information sources for for North Korea analysis and information. And then finally ends the this wonderful interview on a very uh, a sensitive topic, I think, and I think uh, many folks who are in the policy world are familiar with, is uh, the challenges that Asian American women face in the policy world. And I think it's it will be not only a meaningful conversation, but very important conversation uh, that Jessica and Jenny has together. So uh, over to you, Jess.
1: Well, thanks, Dave, for the summary. And, and, you know, you're absolutely right. The conversation really touched on a number of different personal as well as professional areas of Jenny's life. You know, I um, couldn't help but, but think about When Jenny was a toddler at at the orphanage and the fact that she had a heavy Busan accent (laughs) and then her life being really transformed overnight as she got to know her her family and her new surrounding in rural Minnesota and just uh, this idea of being uncomfortable, you know, and, and being okay with being uncomfortable. And so she really does cover, I think, an extraordinary range of personal stories and and inspirations to all of us. So really excited to share this interview with you all now. So let's turn over to it. My name is Jessica Lee, and this is Korean American Perspectives, brought to you by the Council of Korean Americans. I'm here today with Jenny Town, who is a Stimson Fellow and Managing Editor of Stimson's 38 North, a website devoted to providing policy and technical analysis on North Korea. Jenny is also an associate member of CKA and also happens to work very close to CKA office here in DC. So it's great to have you here in our office today. Thank you so much, Jenny. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. So Jenny, I thought we would start off by talking a little bit about your childhood, growing up in rural Minnesota you know, especially as a Korean adoptee, what was that like uh, growing up in the Midwest and, um, you know, being, uh, I guess, a part of a a community that may or may not be familiar with the adoptee experience? (laughs) (laughs) May not is is an understatement.
2: (laughs) Um, It was uh, character building. Let's let's put it that way. so I was adopted when I was three. And so when I came to America, you know, I didn't speak English. I did speak Korean. I spoke Korean with a very heavy Busan mm. Um And so no one had any idea what I was saying. Um, even I think when like back in the old days, they used to send them via airplanes and, you know, your parents would pick you up from the airport. Uh, So I guess they had brought an interpreter to the airport to try and ease the transition, and she had no idea what I was saying. So apparently, yeah, I had a real heavy southern accent. Wow. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, for the first few um, weeks and months, it was apparently very difficult. I don't really remember. I say three is kind of the magic age where I was old enough to know this wasn't normal um, but young enough not to remember anything bad about growing up in an orphanage. And I did find out later that I grew up in an orf- orphanage in Busan from birth until I was three. So it really was, yeah, character building. <laughs> it was hard. Um, my, my parents tell stories of how, um, since I didn't speak any English, we couldn't communicate for a very long time. There was a point to which I stopped speaking altogether, and then for about a month... Uh, then just started speaking English in full sentences. So, I, you know, when you're when you're forced to do it, it is possible. <laughs> uh, but it, you know, my brother is also Korean, also adopted, and my brother and I were basically about the only minorities in about a 50 mile radius of the town that we grew up in. So it's a small town, northern Minnesota. Most of the people have lived there for generations. You know, their families grew up there. Um, so I'm pretty sure I'm related to most of the town as well. <laughs> um, and it's, it's a very kind of parochial environment. Uh, you know, there's a lot of kind of embedded racism, a lot of what we would call now microaggressions um, because people didn't even realize it was racist. They just didn't have any concept of what to do. And I, I remember in the early days, like kindergarten, preschool, people would be like, who are your parents, right? These little Asian kids running around in the midst of all these blonde, blue-eyed people. And um, I remember telling people, oh, I, I don't know, because I don't know who my, my biological parents are, right? And they would just be so confused as to, well, how did you get here? <laughs> <laughs> Um, And I do remember, like, whatever vocabulary I had learned, you know, I was telling stories already of like, oh, you mean the people who I live with, or, you know, eventually I was like, oh, you mean my guardians, and I was learning all this language to talk about my family, Um, and eventually I learned the term, like, adoptive parents, and so then um, I think then people got kind of used to seeing us around, because there's only two of us. (laughs) It was easy to know whose kids we were. Um, and uh, it was hard, you know, being the only minorities and being very conscious of being the only minorities. And it's, uh, you know, pre internet days <laughs> where, you know, even to try and find information and, and study Korea and learn about Korea was a difficult task because you actually had to look for books at the library and, you know, you had to, you were limited to the resources that they had or the resources that your school had. Which you know, when it comes to Korea, was very very limited. Um, so you know, there was a lot of soul searching <laughs> from a very very young age mm. as to why am I here? <laughs> what am I doing? Um, Who am I? Who am I? <laughs> like, how do I get out of? How do I go home? And home to me was always
1: Korea. Mm. And so you know, I wonder how. That experience led you to eventually go to Westmar University in Iowa. Did you intentionally choose that school because of something you really liked about it, and you know, or was it just very circumstantial? It was a, a very deliberate
2: decision, and Korea had a lot to do with it. Um, so, Westmar University at that time um, had had been bought up by a Japanese educational consortium called the Taikyo educational group. So it was actually Taikyo Westmar University. It was a bit of an experiment. Um, this Japanese educational group had bought up five universities in America and a number of universities around the world and with the intention of creating like a global education experience, right? So if you enrolled in one, you could technically take classes at others and move kind of freely between them without... Um, you know, your credits would transfer and, and that kind of stuff without a lot of problems. Um, so they had a heavy Japan focus. And for a very small school in the Midwest, this was hard to find something that had a, a pretty robust East Asia program. Um, theirs was very China, Japan heavy. Um, but they had just set up a um, an exchange program with the Iwa Women's University in Seoul. And so... Um, when I was being recruited, um you know I, I grew up pretty poor. Um, and so I paid my own way through college and I paid my own, you know, like moving expenses and stuff. And um I had been working since I was thirteen, you know, so I was really, you know, independent minded. Um, I only applied to two schools. I applied to University of Chicago, and I got in, but I didn't get scholarship. And then I applied to this university just because of their East Asia focus. Um, and yeah the recruiter had talked about if if I came there I would be the first person to go on this exchange program which was really appealing to me and then they also had they gave me some scholarships for music and for speech I was state speech champion in high school and music <laughs> um, and music I was first chair of flute and a soloist oh, wow. I won some solo contests and stuff and um, I was, you know, the typical overachieving high school Asian student, but mainly because like I had a plan, right? I knew I needed scholarships. <laughs> um, you know, I'd also played volleyball my senior year. I was supposed to be on the varsity team, but I blew out my knee during training camp. Um, so it's like, OK, well, if that one's already been checked off, now I need to focus on getting scholarships in these other areas. And and I did. Um, and then the university also had a program called the Melton Foundation, um, which is uh, really, at that time, it was it was also a big experiment. <laughs> uh, Bill Melton is the guy who invented Verifone Industries, so the magnetic strips on the back of credit cards and ATMs. Mm. Um, and so he was very interested in emerging technologies, and he started this organization back when the internet was an emerging technology of what would happen if you gave... Um, you know, tools, communication tools to college students around the world, Um, what would they do with this? And, you know, what could they come up with? And so this was, um, we had five campuses that were tied into this. It was our campus in Iowa, um, a university in Germany, China, Chile, India. And so it was another way to have a really international experience and really um, broaden you know, the educational experience beyond just the classroom learning. And so there was a lot of things about Westmar that I really mm-hmm. liked. Mm-hmm. Um, and did you
1: end up studying abroad at IHWA?
2: So I spent my sophomore year at IHWA. The whole I-Haw. year? The whole year, yeah.
1: And what was that like?
2: It was pretty amazing. <laughs> um, of course, you know, being a college student in Korea um, is a lot of fun when when you're not a Korean, when you're not Korean. <laughs> You're not like a Korean national, like you you don't have to take take it as seriously as what um, the mm-hmm. Koreans do. But um, no, it was great because it was a Asia Studies program at uh, IWA Women's University. It was a small program at that time. I, I, you know, they'd had the summer program before, but I think the international Asia Studies program was relatively new. Um, so we had a lot of. Um, Yeah, it was a small group. We became very tight. I was there through two cohorts Um, and uh, like going home for me, you know, I was 19 going to Korea for the first time since I came to America. It was my first time on a plane. (laughs) It was my first time, you know, having a passport and getting a visa. I was actually going to China for two weeks or China for yeah, about two weeks um, for one of these Mountain Foundation conferences um, before I was going to Korea, so it actually made it, the transition a little bit easier, but I only bought one-way tickets. <laughs> so as a sophomore in college, buying one-way tickets to a foreign country when you've never traveled is kind of a big deal. <laughs> and I remember I was scared to death, of course, going to China first, but I was going with a group and, you know, had my friends around me and stuff. But I remember we, we flew into Shanghai And at the Shanghai Immigration, uh, they stopped me at immigration. They wouldn't let me through. They were yelling at me in Chinese. They threw back my passport and my entry card. And I was terrified, right? Like, I've never traveled. And, you know, you hear stories about China. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to jail. I'm going to jail. I'm going to jail. I was like, what's wrong? And he's yelling at me in Chinese. And so then I was like, composed myself. I was like, well, it's immigration in an international airport. He must speak some English, right? Right. So I asked, I was like, is there a problem? And he, he points at me, and he yells at me. He was like, put your Chinese name on it. And I was like, but I'm not Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he didn't believe me. And so we had like this argument for the next 20 minutes of me trying to convince him that I wasn't Chinese. <laughs> And it's like, I don't know how you prove you're not Chinese when you're not Chinese to someone who's convinced you're Chinese. And because my first instinct then was to be like, I'm not Chinese, I'm Korean, but I have a U.S. passport. I'm like, I don't think that's going to help me. <laughs> so eventually, um, I'm like waving my passport around like, no, American, American, see, it's me. Um, and I think it's probably the first time I'd ever told anyone, I'm American, I'm American, <laughs> and not like Korean. So it was a weird moment, but he finally let me through. Um, and, you know, we had this conference. We spent about, you know, 10, 15 days in, in about 10, 10 to 12 days in China. Um, and then when the rest of the group was going back to the U.S., um, I was on my way to Korea by myself. And I remember just crying all the way to the gate because I was again just terrified. <laughs> I didn't know any Korean. Um, I didn't quite know what I was doing. I'd only bought, you know, brought like one suitcase and a duffel bag, and that was that was it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and so there was a, there was a woman in the gate who saw me crying and she came over to me and was talking to me And it. So it turns out she's a Japanese woman who was married to an American GI and they had adopted a Korean girl also. And so she was telling me stories about her family and her life and it really helped calm me down. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and kind of collect myself before I got on the plane and you know, I, I went to Korea knowing enough Korean to say, hello, thank you, goodbye, my name is Jenny. Mm. Does not get you out of the airport. And then eventually, <laughs> uh, my, when I was at IWA, I had to also take a beginner-level Korean class, which I was very happy to do because, you know, I didn't even know there were two number systems, and I knew the less useful one, (laughs) the one that doesn't (laughs) include money. So I was just like, what am I doing? And, you know, luckily, um, they had sent a student to pick me up from the airport, and so, you know, she, she sort of helped me out, and they put us in the international, all the international students in one dorm. So... You know, we, we did have some English networks we could use, but if I was leaving campus, I was screwed, right? But my beginner-level Korean class was crazy. We I walked in, the class is being taught in Korean, and I, I remember, I had no idea what she was talking about. Looking back on it now, I know that the first day of class, her lesson was talking about the proper usage of articles, like, Iga. <laughs> I know. Hello. Thank you. Goodbye. My name is Jenny. (laughs) And so I was just lost. And I kept asking the students, I was like, is this the beginner class? Am I in the right class? And they're like, yeah. I was like, do you know what she's talking about? And they're like, no. (laughs) So we were just sort of like a little bit lost. And eventually she's standing in front of me, speaking to me, I have no idea what she's saying. And so the the girl next to me eventually poked me and was like, she just asked if you understand anything. And I was like, no. <laughs> um, and so, you know, she... But she didn't let me off. And I, I read her bio. I knew that she had studied in America. So I knew she spoke English. But she never spoke English to me. She refused to, um, which was actually a good thing. You know, it really made me learn faster. I actually learned Korean then in a month. So I learned English in a month. I learned (laughs) Korean in a month. And so within a month, I could speak full sentences and, you know, get around easy, um, you know, easy conversations, simple conversations. And I remember the end of the first semester, um, she was, it was oral finals. She was asking me questions. I was answering her. We're having a basic conversation and she starts to cry and she's like, oh, Jenny, I remember your first day of class and you didn't speak any Korean and now look at you, you can speak Korean. She's like, I'm such a good teacher. I was like, okay, yeah, I had nothing to do with this, but sure. Um, But she told me that uh, normally the the program had been, it was relatively young um, and they technically only had three levels: beginner, intermediate, advanced. And so I was supposed to, since I passed the beginner, I was supposed to move to intermediate. Um, but she told me like, because of me, they decided to split up beginner into beginner A, beginner B. Mm. They'd never had a real beginner before. <laughs> They'd always had people who had had at least some Korean or like Korean Americans who you know just didn't know grammar but could you know have conversations. They'd never had someone start from zero before. And so because of me, then they had beginner A, they split it into two groups. So beginner A was taught in English and then beginner B was taught in Korean. And so she was like, you know, instead of moving to intermediate, I'd like you to stay in beginner B. And she was teaching beginner B. And so um, the next group that came in um, was mainly Korean Americans. And again, they spoke some Korean, they just didn't know any grammar. Um, but she's explaining the grammar to them in Korean and they didn't get it. And so she would explain the grammar point. They would all be very confused. And then I would explain the grammar point and they're like, oh, okay. And she would just be like, oh, I'm such a good teacher. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and during your time in Korea, did you have a chance to look for your biological parents? What, what would that have looked like if yeah. you tried? Um, so I
2: did. Um, when I went to Korea, it was not my intention. To look for my birth family. Um, But then, you know, especially after the first semester, I'd been in Korea for six months. I didn't know if I would ever make it back to Korea. And I was like, if I don't do this, I'm really going to regret it. Um, I didn't have a lot of information. uh, And I did uh, eventually run into people there. There were several Korean adoptees there. Um, The ones that were there from Europe were pretty well organized, actually, and and had good peer networks. The ones that were there from the U.S., we were all just flailing in the wind, right? We had no organization. We didn't know what to do. We were just all lost children. Um, And so the Europeans really helped us out. And there's one woman in particular. She's kind of known as, like, the godmother of Korean adoptees and especially helping those that have searched. Her name is uh, Cho Mihi. And to so me, was really instrumental in kind of breaking down the barriers to searching. Because it used to be in Korea, we didn't have, of course, we're not constituents, we didn't have rights. Um, we weren't citizens, we didn't have rights. And the laws were meant to protect the parents and protect the identities of the parents. And so we didn't have rights to access our own records. And so you know, because of people like her and, and a lot of the work that she did really kind of forcing agencies to deal with this issue, forcing the government to deal with this issue and change laws, um, we now have rights to do birth family searches. Um, but at that time, Yeah, I didn't have a lot of information. The way that Korean adoption worked in the early days was that there was um, a Korean adoption agency and a U.S. adoption agency, and then they broker a deal. And so I knew the American adoption agency, and then Mihi helped me figure out who the Korean counterpart was. And so I went to um, Korea Social Services. We went to see my records, and at that point... It always helped to bring a reporter with you <laughs> to kind of force them into doing stuff they, they're uncomfortable doing because they also don't want the bad publicity of being the one to block everything. And so um, when I was at the adoption agency, we found my record that told... And, like, each piece tells only a little piece of the story. And so I found out at least um, what orphanage I grew up in, in in uh, Busan. And there was uh, this full page spread in this magazine in the, I think it was the Ma at that point. Um, He was a, the photographer had made like, there was a whole um, series on these European adoptees and then me. (laughs) Um, But they had all found their parents and I was the only one who hadn't and so they included me to just help me out. But because I was searching, you know, Korea is not big on privacy laws. (laughs) So they actually published my contact information in the magazine, like my physical mailing address and phone number. <laughs> um, so I started to get mail from men. <laughs> oh. Looking, you know, some were like um, lonely guys doing military service, some were old men. I had a couple of marriage proposals. Um, I was in, and this happened, you know, with it when every stage I was, I became kind of a poster child for Korean adoptees searching, and so uh, there was a lot of media. I was in a documentary and a couple of magazines and a couple of newspapers on TV a lot um, and so eventually uh, you know every step of the way um, had got got a little a different piece of the story um, to the point where we traced back uh, where my um, where i was so we found the orphanage where i was where i grew up and the police station that handed me over to the orphanage and then was able to find the clinic where i was born and i actually met the doctor who delivered me as part of a documentary and so it was really weird (laughs) she because at that point she then owned the clinic And the clinic's name was also Iwa. It was the Iwa Obstetrics Clinic in Busan. And she was an Iwa grad, and so, like, I think Iwa was in my destiny. (laughs) (laughs) And then, basically, she... It was really funny, because when we first met, we're on camera. She comes up to me. I had been practicing my Korean as to what I was going to say to her. And the first thing I was going to tell her was that I don't speak Korean very well. In Korean. And I was, you know, rehearsing this. I'm nervous. I don't know what I'm doing. She walks into the room and the first thing she asks me is, do you speak English? In English. (laughs) And I didn't know what to say. (laughs) Like, it, it just threw me. It caught me so off guard because I was thinking, well, I could answer in Korean and then tell her I don't speak Korean well because this is what I've practiced. And I was like, but that's dumb. Of course I speak English. <laughs> and she asked me in English. And so it took me a good, like, 30 seconds to formulate the word yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, so then we, we were having a discussion, and she was explaining to me that um, what happened was my mother was in labor when she was admitted, they they didn't keep records on her, they didn't get her name, apparently, um, or her address or any of the identifying information. She was that far along. Um, after she delivered me, um, the doctor had gone to another patient who was in labor, and by the time she came back to check on my mother, my mother was gone and had left me there. She said it was the only time it happened at her clinic. And she was like, oh, I remember this, of course, because it was the first time it happened at her clinic. It was." But also, it was the only patient who never paid her bill, because they didn't know where to send the bill. <laughs> and so I remember telling her on camera, I was like, well, don't send it to me. I'm not going to pay it either. <laughs>
1: yeah. So to this day, we, we don't know.
2: Yeah. So, so basically, you know, I've hit. I've hit the end of the road as to what I can find out, right. and you know I think my story is out there enough. Where if my mother ever wanted to find me, it would be easy for her to do so. Uh, but now it's sort of on her, and whoever might know about me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, you know, there's no more records that I can find. Like that trail is mm-hmm. is ended.
1: So I want to go back to this uh, theme that you touched upon earlier, which you know, I thought was really striking, you know, the, the fact that we have Korean adoptees in the United States who are who come here legally, who are, you know, fully integrated as mm-hmm. Americans in society, but they go through various challenges, and not only in their upbringing, but in finding a community, like you said, you know, a, a support network, mm-hmm. right? People who, you know, have had similar experience and, and can relate. So, you know, I wonder if you could talk about how... That has evolved, particularly with respect to the attention that, you know, certain members of Congress has been uh, placing to address this loophole uh, that exists that mm-hmm. affects about um, 32,000 adoptees, uh, about 18,000, I believe, of which are Korean-born. And so wanted to get your thoughts on, on that, you know, legal issue in particular, but, you know, kind of more broadly, how, where is the Korean adoptee community in the United States today? So, you know, international adoption is a relatively
2: new practice, and the Koreans really started it. So, prior to the Korean War, international adoption was only allowed in exigent circumstances and in post-conflict zones, and usually through religious institutions. After the Korean War, the first wave of adoptees were really GI babies, um, it was, you know, the country was war torn. It was everyone was poor. The country was devastated, and you had these GI babies, these half babies that um, Korea didn't know what to do with. Uh, and so, um, Korea was the first country to really make a business practice out of adoption, international adoption, rather than just a humanitarian action. You mean because of the sheer number of. I I think it was a combination of factors of one, it was a lucrative business. (laughs) There was a high demand in the West for children and especially in the U S there was growing restrictions on who could adopt. And, you know, in the U S where obviously it's a regulated system, it's by social work standards, there's a lot of vetting that goes on. Um, You know, if you wanted a baby, it could take you years to get a baby domestically, whereas, you know, it, in the post-war era, you could get a child within weeks, right, at, you know, half the cost. (laughs) Um, And there was, you know, it was very kind of religious institution-driven at that time rather than, you know, strict social work standards. Um, The vetting wasn't as good. There wasn't post-adoption services. It was really like, you know, parents were kind of told, if you love your child, that's enough, which isn't necessarily the case. (laughs) Um, but yeah, they were the, Korea was the first country to treat this as a business. And so the first wave of international adoptees um, are Korean. The first wave that came in mass were Korean. Um, and that was the case for several years, was that you know the, the only international the only children being adopted internationally were Korean. Um, but one of the things that um, wasn't stressed enough, in the post-adoption services, if there were post-adoption services, was this idea of you need to get your child citizenship. Your child needs to be naturalized. And I think a lot of parents thought, well, when the adoption is complete, that my child is now an American citizen.
1: Because they're legally part of their family. Legally part of their family.
2: Um, And so there's a lot of families out there where the parents either didn't know or didn't care and didn't go through that process. And so those children didn't necessarily know they weren't American citizens because they had social security numbers and they could go through schools. And um, and so usually the, the realization that they weren't citizens only came if they got in trouble. And so like I remember a story of a woman who was deported in the 90s for unpaid parking tickets. <laughs> she had A number of unpaid parking tickets, um, but that's how she found out that she wasn't a U.S. citizen and she ended up getting deported because of it. Um, So what's happening now, you know, as the international adoption system grew and as the number of countries, sending countries grew, um, you know, there's more and more regulation, there's more and more, um, like, uh, post-adoption services, there's better adoption services and... and, uh, standards. But um, in 2000, Congress finally passed a law that made citizenship automatic for people who were legally adopted. But it didn't grandfather in the adoptees who were adopted before 2000. And so um, the, the the Adoptee Citizenship Act that's going through Congress now is trying to remedy that situation to prevent other adoptees from being deported. And so basically what it's calling for is automatic citizenship for anyone who was legally adopted, which is kind of a no-brainer, right? (laughs) Uh, And there's been a lot of support for that concept itself. Um, But the other part of the legislation is to allow for those who have been deported to come back and to gain their citizenship as well. Um, and this is where there has been controversy, um, because generally the deportations are because of some kind of criminal activity. So then it becomes a, a very tricky immigration question, because then you get the the legislators, especially that are like, you know, do we really want criminal want to bring back criminals to our country? But it's but they're American citizens; they should be here, even if they're in jail. They still have the right to be here.
1: They have families here, they have families children. here. Mm-hmm. And,
2: and, you know, in, in most of these cases, they have no relationship with their home country either. And in the case of Koreans, up until 2012, Korean adoptees were not even eligible for Korean citizenship because it was the national, um, the special adoption law in, that was passed in 2012, which was the first time that um, Korean adoptees were allowed to present um, basically a proof of orphanhood as their family registry. And since we didn't have family registries before that, because we're orphans, we couldn't become citizens. And so, you know, in those cases that they were deported, they didn't have Korean citizenship, but they didn't have U.S. citizenship either. And so there was, you know, cases of stateless people as well during these deportation processes.
1: So this seems... Like as with many things in Congress, a very complicated uh, issue, and um, different factions that are maybe supporting more ambitious versions of this, you know, uh, legislation and so forth. Um, do you think that there is a role for Korean American community to play in, you know, perhaps educating ourselves about the issue itself and you know, maybe even going one step further to to organize um, and and really, um, you know, advocate for change.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think it's it's there used to be a lot of chasms between the Korean adoptee and the Korean American communities because of the stigma, um, which I always thought was really interesting. <laughs> it's like I understand the stigma in Korea. I didn't understand growing up the the stigma with the Korean. Korean American community, because you know, it's not Korea, right? We're all in America right. fiddling around in the wind, right? Um, but I think, you know, there has been some progress over the years of the Korean American community trying to better integrate the adopted community because technically we're about 10% of the Korean American population. But our issues aren't considered Korean American issues, they're considered adoption issues. And I do think there needs to be more ownership from the Korean American community of Korean you know issues that affect Korean adoptees because we are ten percent of the community. <laughs> We're a large chunk of the Korean American community that's not represented in in the Korean American community agenda. Um, but this is an immigration issue. This is you know, an adoption issue, this is a community issue. And, you know, Korean Americans, because there's so many Korean adoptees and because Korea started this practice, really should be involved and should be invested in how this plays out to our community,
1: not just to those children. Yeah, and I think, you know, because this is an immigration issue to a certain extent, um, in addition to it being more of a, of an ethnic issue um, you know I think just given the climate right now with what's happening at the border and with dreamers and so forth it seems like a particularly challenging time to right. to tackle this issue and so that's um, you know very unfortunate uh, because like you said this is a group of people who came to the United States legally through a legal process and should already be Americans um, and um, yet you know, uh, they're sent back for, you know, misdemeanors all the way to, you know, serious crimes, but nevertheless, they should be treated as Americans and right. not uh, deported to a foreign country. So I I, I understand um, how heartbreaking this issue must be for folks who have friends or uh, neighbors or, you know, uh, people who are going through that right now mm-hmm. and, and this sense of um, powerlessness, you know, so... Uh, this is certainly, uh, I think, a challenging issue, but something that we should um, uh, learn more about and, and certainly um, find ways to, to support. So, I want to go back to, you know, uh, some of the work that you're doing here in Washington. Uh, you talked about your experience in South Korea at IWA, um, but, you know, I know you uh, also uh, studied in New York at Columbia University um, and then eventually uh, moved to Washington where you've been working for a number of years. So... You know, I wanted to get a sense, particularly for some of our younger listeners who are interested in foreign policy and national security work, you know, how did you get started and what has this experience been like for you thus far? So I've had kind of a long, windy road to D.C. (laughs)
2: Um, To back up a little bit, like when I was in Korea, and like I said, I've always felt Korean. I, was, I always felt Korea was my home. Um, I tried very hard to learn about Korea. So being in Korea, learning about Korea was fascinating. It also was, and I'm going to date myself here, <laughs> it was the mid-90s. <laughs> and this is right when news reports were coming out of North Korea that there was a famine in North Korea. And I remember talking about it with some of my you know, fellow classmates and, and people in the community and stuff, and nobody believed it. And I was, I was just intrigued by this. Like, why wouldn't you believe news reports of famine in North Korea? South Koreans
1: didn't believe South it. South Koreans
2: didn't believe it. So, you know, and it's like, well, if North Korea is reporting that they have famine, why don't the South Koreans believe that? And I think to me that was sort of the spark of my interest in North Korea, um, and in sort of north south relations over time. Um, but then, you know, life happens. <laughs> and, you know, being in, going back to finish school in Iowa, um, afterwards I moved to Minneapolis, spent a couple years in Minneapolis, um, was interested in Korea and doing stuff on Asia in general. There are no jobs <laughs> like that <laughs> in Minneapolis, I can tell you that, especially not at that time. Um, So my first job out of college, I was running a computer consulting firm during the dot-com era (laughs) when you had to explain to people what the Internet was and what browsers were and what applications were. And it wasn't like a job application, but an actual, you know, computer module. (laughs) Um, And so it was a very different time. And then um, did that, ended up working in advertising for a couple years as a project manager um, and then eventually moved out to D.C., uh, where um, my first job in D.C. was, um, I actually convinced uh, the college board, um, where I became, I, I got hired for a one-week temp assignment to do like a mailing project that I completed in about two hours, because it wasn't that hard. <laughs> um, spent the rest of the week, you know, there and helping out in different capacities. And by the end of the week, they created a new position for me. Where I was office director <laughs> slash uh, special projects manager for government relations, um, and so that was kind of my first job in uh, in D.C. in the D.C. community, starting to network. Um, was working on education policy. Was also a manager that was managing the other managers, <laughs> which as a you know at that time as like a 26 year old Asian woman was met with a little resistance <laughs> as to who is this girl and you know I think they thought at first that I would be a, a very easy manager and I'm, I'm not. <laughs> my my colleague told me once she was like Jenny, you don't have to rule everything with an iron fist and it's like well I kinda do. <laughs> so there is my name on it. Um, But yeah, and then ended up leaving that to help start an international peace organization that was focused on the role of women in peace-building processes. Um, Got burnt out on life. Ended up going back to Korea for a couple years and teaching English um, to really kind of collect myself. And, you know, I had actually always wanted to go back to Korea. My plan was, after college, to go back to Korea. Um, But, you know, I graduated college right when the... Asian financial crisis hit, <laughs>
0: mm.
2: which was not a good time to go back to Korea and try and find work as an American citizen. No, that that wasn't going to happen. So yeah, it took me about 10 years before I went back to Korea, spent a couple of years there, um, and then came back more focused, knowing that I wanted to work on Korea issues and ended up you know, and knew that in Washington, like I needed to get my master's, I'd already hit that glass ceiling of what I could do without a master's. Was uh, in the meantime, just wanted the exposure. So my first internship was when I was 30, Mm. (laughs) where I was basically volunteering to work for the um, Human Rights in North Korea project at Freedom House. And just because I wanted the you know, exposure to the issues and to the field and, you know, starting to build networks and stuff. And mm-hmm. they ended up hiring me as a communications consultant. Um, so while I was in grad school, also, I was still working with Freedom House. And that was, you know, at that time, that's when I met Jay. and Jay Koo was my boss then. And then when he moved over to the U.S. Korea Institute at Johns Hopkins SAIS, then um, he eventually um, brought me over there as well. And then he and I helped build that institute. Mm-hmm. So it was a long, windy road. (laughs) And, um, you know, I I do believe that my success in the last few years is really because I've had a long, windy road. Like, for instance, 38 North, um, Joel Witt and I, we started this back in 2010. And I think there's a lot of people who know the policy side of the game, know, you know, how to write op eds, know how to. no, you know have networks uh to tap into things but they don't know how to present the information they don't know how to brand the information they don't know how to um necessarily get it out in the world in an effective way and I think you know my my um, background in project management and advertising and brand management in public relations in communications and organizational development, all of this has helped contribute to um, the successes we've had at the
1: Institute and um, with uh, 38 North. You were recently named one of Fast Company's most creative people in business in 2019 for your role in co-founding and managing 38 North. And so, you know, for for those of us who are not familiar with 38 North, can you tell us a little bit about what it does and, you know, your day-to-day role? Sure. Um, so the the website 38north.org
2: <laughs> is, um, yeah, we, we try to be, we provide policy and technical analysis on North Korea. And so when we started, our goal was really to elevate the level of analysis and in public policy debates. North Korea is a country where it's very difficult to get information about, and so people think they don't have to. <laughs> Um, they don't hold themselves to the same standards they would for other countries in being able to corroborate information, being able to you know have multiple sources before you report something, in you know trying to verify rumors before you report on them, um, and, and being able to base decisions on actual data and not just um, you know assumptions. So what we tried to do was to say that North Korea is not unknowable. It is harder to study than most countries, but it's not unknowable. And so we tried to tap into the people who we know who have expertise in this field, who have studied this field, who have worked with North Koreans, who have worked in North Korea, um, who could bring that expertise and that nuance and that understanding to the analysis and to the public policy debates. So that was really our initial goal, was um, to be that platform for expertise and to try and, but make it still accessible, not just to a policy crowd, but to the general public as well. And so we do a lot of media outreach also, because you know most people learn about North Korea solely through the media. So good reporting matters. <laughs> And, you know, over time, we've added different features. Uh, We're most known for our satellite imagery analysis. So we do monitor North Korea's WMD sites via satellite imagery. You know, it's one of those areas where we don't have boots on the ground. And so, you know, all the data that we can get, we want all the data that we can get. And satellite imagery is one of those points of data that allows us to base decisions and assessments on hard data and not just what we think is happening. Right. There are limitations, of course, of, of what you can learn from satellite imagery, but it helps. <laughs> um, yeah, and really our goal now is to be kind of a digital resource center, a go you know, one-stop shop, a go-to for information and analysis on North Korea.
1: Hmm. You and I have talked in you know our personal time <laughs> about what it's like to be a young Asian woman in this field, and I've uh, also sat in meetings with you where, you know, you've really provided incisive analysis that other people refer to throughout the meeting. So I know how, you know, highly respected you are in this field. And I was wondering, you know, how you navigate this space being a woman. Your work involves a lot of traveling, a lot of being in conferences and meetings where you're the only woman. How do you conduct yourself and come prepared and just not let other things faze you? Um, I think I learned from a very young age how to be
2: comfortable being uncomfortable. (laughs) It's a very useful skill. (laughs) And, you know, yeah, there's several times where I'm, you know, the only woman in the room or the only woman who's not serving coffee in the room. And I'm always very conscious of that. But at the same time, I don't let it get to me. And, you know... It's taken, it's taken a while, <laughs> this is a field that it's very dominated by old men um, who don't necessarily have a lot of respect for diversity, they don't have a lot of respect for women, they don't have a lot of respect for um, opposing voices. <laughs> And, you know, especially for someone like me who doesn't have government experience, I don't, you know, I didn't come from inside the beltway. Mm. I am kind of an outsider, but I've been an outsider my whole life. So, like I said, I, I've gotten comfortable being uncomfortable. And I think half the time is really just showing up. Like, once you get the invitation, you got to show up and you, you got to be prepared. And, you know, you have to know twice as much as everyone else and be prepared for people to assume you know half of what everyone else says. (laughs) Um, But, you know, it also helps... I don't know if I should say this on the record, but it also helps to, you know, also be willing to be social in that process, especially on Korea stuff. (laughs) You have to put in the time on the social side of stuff as well as the business side of stuff, because once people start to see you as a person and not just a girl... (laughs) it helps and so i think there's a lot of times where even some of the some of the men that i work with are so used to me being there that they kind of forget that i'm the only woman in the room which sometimes can be awkward, but <laughs> uh, but like I said, you know, you kind of roll with it. Um, you know, I, I'm not a believer in you have to act like a man. I'm not a believer in like those kinds of things. And I haven't done that. I still show up in four inch heels and floral dresses. And I'm okay with that. And I think everyone else has gotten used to it too. <laughs> um, but I think it's more of like, you know, you do have to be prepared to be questioned you do have to be prepared for people to assume you don't know anything, and mm. assume that you should you don't belong there. And mm. you just have to
1: believe you belong there right. and own that space. I know you met with our public service interns recently at the Stimson Center, and uh, I, I heard feedback from the students of how important that exchange was. You know, in terms of your giving advice on being open to new opportunities and how to navigate this field here in Washington. So we appreciate everything you do at CKA as an associate member and as a supporter of this organization and uh, for always being a resource to us when we uh, come with questions about issues that are important to our community. So thank you for making yourself available today and we look forward to staying in touch and seeing all your future endeavors and accomplishments in this field. So thank you, Jenny. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure.
0: Thank you, Jessica, for that fascinating interview. I didn't realize that Jenny was named one of Fast Company's most creative people in business in 2019. Uh, I didn't realize that we had a celebrity in our midst (laughs) uh, for her co-founding and managing 38 North. For those of you... um, who are interested in North Korea, and obviously uh, the fast-moving uh, security and economic issues that are going on there, uh, I encourage you to go over to 38 North. I, I read it very often uh, when I do analysis. But thank you, Jess, for that fascinating interview, and obviously a rich interview that connects both personal and professional stories about, uh, about Jenny, Jenny's life.
1: Yes, and it was great to see Jenny at the Stimson Center recently where she met with our 2019 public service interns and shared her story about her work alongside David Kim, who is a, uh, another research analyst and expert on North Korea and WMD issues at Stimson Center who has actually recently joined CKA. So it's great to see CKA members share these stories with our aspiring future leaders and opinion makers. And uh, we really appreciate Jenny and uh, other members who take time to meet with our public service interns uh, throughout the summer. We look forward to sharing our next episode with you on our website, councilka.org. You could also find us where you get your podcast episodes. And please feel free to reach out with any feedback, questions, or concerns. Thanks, and see you next time.
0: Thank you. Thank you for tuning into the Korean
1: American Perspectives Podcast. Head over to CouncilKA.org for the show notes of this episode and see exciting upcoming programs at CKA. That's
0: CouncilKA.org.